0: Good morning. My name is Jim Stratton, and I'll be reading the uh, passage for this morning from Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. That's, uh, if if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, that's on page 620, the Bible in the rack in front of you. Maybe not your Bible, but the rack in front of you is, is 620. And uh, so it's, it's good to see you this morning, really. I, uh, I don't get a chance to come up here very often, but uh, I just love to see fellow brothers and sisters worshiping the Lord. So Luke 7, 18, through 35. It's a rather long text. Jesus and John the Baptist. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for his two disciples and he sent them to the Lord asking, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? So John's disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now at that very time, Jesus cured many people from their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. And he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, Go back and tell John and tell him what you have seen and heard the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, and the dead hear, the dead the deaf hear, excuse me, and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who who do not fall away because of me. Now, after John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes, no people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found <laughs> No people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces Were you looking for a prophet Yes and he is more than a prophet John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say Look I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, all who have ever lived, none is greater than John, yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. And when they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right. For they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected John's plan for them, God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. To what can I compare the people of this generation? Jesus asked. How can I describe them? They are the children, they are like children playing uh, in the public square and they complained to their friends. We played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. And the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it." This is God's Word. Amen. Thank you, Jim.
1: Well done. That's a long one, so we brought in the heavy hitters on that one. So thank you, Jim Stratton. Appreciate that, the voice of many things at Calvary over the years. (laughs) Uh, uh, With this passage today, I think, what do you expect of Jesus? What are your expectations of him? And what do you think his expectations are of you? A couple questions we might ponder or we might have uh, we might have in those dark moments in the middle of the night even of thinking What do we expect of Jesus? Who is this man? And I want to tell you today as we look through this pretty unique and somewhat difficult passage that Jesus is beyond your expectations He's beyond the expectations of the people of Israel of the Pharisees the religious leaders he was even beyond the expectations of John the Baptist. So let's, uh, let's talk about this then a little bit more. Let's talk about John the Baptist even. John the Baptist is often present uh, during the Christmas story in our, in our teachings and of course I love that. Uh, we, we love Christmas around here, I love Christmas and I'm getting excited that it's coming soon. So hopefully you are too. If you remember, I completely skip October. We do light the night, sure, but uh, it is Christmas season already, and I'm proud of it, and I don't care what you say. Uh, Here we go. All right, so (laughs) we often, though, we talk about John the Baptist in that time because you've got that whole story, that wild, amazing story where he is within his mother's stomach still, and he comes upon Jesus in his mother's stomach when they are both pregnant with these two as little babies inside of them. And it says that John the Baptist leaps for joy within his mother's womb. Just at the presence of Jesus there. Incredible. Radical. John is not someone to have a bland reaction to something. John then is this one that is spoken of as the messenger. We even see this here, the one that will prepare the way to be able to to shout out about how the one is coming. He is coming and he's coming soon. That is his role. And so even in the Advent season, as we discuss our hope, the hope that we have for a savior, that he is the one preparing the way for all of that. He's got a huge role in this. And in this very passage, you have strong reactions that are needed by people. John has some struggles. Then there's these reactions that are spoken of that we can kind of get into about responding with this. We have this joy in our lives that is very present in the midst of both grief and celebration. In struggle, and in the, the, the party, the feast. We have joy in all of this. And we recognize that that joy is from God and in God. And uh, John, though, uh, here is kind of like, what? he's having a hard time with what is happening. John is in prison when this is happening. We learn this in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 10, 11, in that range. And, uh, and it's kind of like, this passage is, like kind of unique and funky in the sense of you get this, like, Jesus being mysterious and coy, right? People ask him questions, and he doesn't just say, they don't, you know, he's, are you the one, are you the Messiah? And he doesn't just say, yes or no. Like, would you just love a yes or no, please? And he's like, Tell him what you have seen. You know, it's like the wise, like, oracle sort of vibe, right? And it's like, no, he's not going to ever just, like, say it uh, blatantly, but he wants you to see it in who he is. And again, he is beyond expectations. The expectations of the people of Israel, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, even John. And... So we are going to then see a little bit more of that here. All right, so as we kind of break down each section a little bit, I want you to know that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Okay? If Jesus is going to be coy about it, (laughs) I want to be blatant about it here for you and say, Jesus is the one that John had been waiting for. And Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for in your life for all that you need, beyond all the other expectations that you might have of God. You've placed expectations upon God of what you think he is supposed to provide for you, what you think he's supposed to do for you. The way and the timeline that he is supposed to do that in, we all place these kind of expectations of God that often lead us to disappointment with God or anger with God. And I wanna tell you in the midst of that moment that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for, to be with you presently in the here and now and for you to be with him eternally. He's the one you've been waiting for for all of that. That is who he is. and we have John who's in this moment seemingly of, of struggle, of doubt, of just needing something more, and he sends these guys to ask, are you the Messiah, it says here in our NLT version. Are you the Messiah? So you think, okay, well, they're, they're wanting a Messiah. What, what in the world is a Messiah or the Messiah, especially? Now, um, that's kind of a, it's a term that gets used today, it's a little bit more like we would use that as uh, maybe we discuss literature of messianic archetypes or you discuss uh, narcissists and you say they've got a messianic complex or a savior complex or something like that. Because they're not the savior, they're not the messiah, so you call them that. Here we have Jesus who actually is the one, the anointed one, it means, like the chosen one, okay, the one who has been chosen to do this, the one that they've been expecting, the expected one, the coming one. What's interesting, though, here in, in this passage, uh, it doesn't, in the, in the Greek, as you get into it, it actually doesn't say the word Messiah, it actually just sort of says, like, is he him, right? Right? He is him, as the, as the youths would say these days, right? He is him. Jesus is him. He is the one. Uh, I think this would just be a, a good little spot for me to talk a little bit about Bible translations, okay? I'm going to do like a little bit of an aside here. Because you might say like, oh, why does it say Messiah then in the NLT? This New Living Translation that we use. That These are these Bibles in the back of the seat in front of you. Um, there's like a couple different Uh, Bible translations, or types of Bible translations, and I want you to understand something about them. Uh, Like my other favorite, I love the NLT, my other sort of favorite Bible translation personally is that New American Standard Bible, especially the 1995 edition, which sounds very specific and nerdy, but they did an update in 2020, and I prefer the 95. Okay, so, but whatever. It's, (laughs) but what I'm actually here to talk to you about is how I think different Bible translations are good, okay? It's important that we have them because we are reading Bibles in English. We aren't reading the Bible in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. We're reading in English. So we are all reading a translation. And uh, there's lots of different like, ways that you can translate. And so some are a more like closer to being a literal word-for-word translation. That's like the NASB 95, is that kind of a translation. It's trying to the best of its ability to translate word for word literal. However, it is not Translating the entire Bible word-for-word literal, even though it's trying its best to do that. Because sometimes idioms or expressions or these words wouldn't make sense if you just put them in a row. It's expressing something, so we want to understand what it is expressing. Now, the NLT is kind of more, maybe like along the lines of an NIV, a little more of what's called a dynamic equivalent, which means it's expressing thought for thought. There's word-for-word, and then there's thought for thought. And so it's kind of helping you to understand what is this saying? And so sometimes it's saying, when it just, like the Greek would say, is he him? It's like trying to help the reader understand what in the world are you talking about when you say, is he him? Right? And so that is where uh, these different translations kind of come from. And what I want you to understand is one is not right and one is wrong. One is not good and one is not bad, right? It is that we have these different ones and we can prefer certain ones, and we do, uh, but uh, they they both have these very specific purposes. I was talking to some of our Wycliffe uh, Bible translator missionaries that are within our church that are these expert linguists, and I was talking to them about that, and they actually love the NLT because the NLT, what their criteria is, is the ABCs of translation, that it is accurate, that it is, oh my gosh, I'm going to like blank, Uh, (laughs) beautiful, sorry, accurate, because I started thinking biblical, because of course it is, it's the Bible, okay, accurate, beautiful, and clear, that it is accurate, beautiful and clear. That's what makes an excellent translation of Scripture. And they feel that that's what the New Living Translation does for people that live in Orange County, California. And so that's what's good for us. Um, so anyway, but it's just a little side that I want you to understand. Uh, and I think you can use these different translations. I use the NESB sometimes, and I use the NLT sometimes in different kinds of study that I might be doing. But The Messiah. That is what they are talking about when they say, is he him? Is he the coming one? Is he the one that we've been expecting for all this time? Because they've been longing for and waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the one that will come to change everything. And so you think, okay, what were the people expecting? Just the the general people of Israel. We've discussed this, I think, relatively often here, but they are expecting a liberator, a deliverer from their occupiers of the Romans. They're expecting military victory. They're expecting for them to uh, have their national independence, that this Messiah would come and deliver where now, Israel is this nation, this land that is ruled under God and we have our place back. The people were expecting that. I was thinking then about what were the religious leaders or the Pharisees expecting. Likely similar to what the people were expecting in a lot of ways. But probably also likely expecting someone that would come and affirm the way they were doing everything. Everything. Okay, so their rule following, their law creating, their their, uh, ways of just being like, we've got all these rules that's gonna keep you in line and you're gonna now be within this, this boundary and then the Messiah would come and be like, yeah, good job. Now we're just gonna have everybody do it like you guys. Okay, so that's where you have like that Pharisee way of looking at what the Messiah was gonna come and do to free them and then to also affirm what they've been doing. And then you've got this crazy John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist expecting? And I say crazy just cause he's like, seems crazy at times, right? He's out in the wilderness, got like animal skins for clothes and just eating locusts and honey and saying wild prophetic things. I mean, he's a guy that you would definitely, if you saw him today, you'd just be like, nope, crazy dude, not listening. Okay, I almost guarantee that would be Like almost all of our reaction to John the Baptist. So we can like act like we know or we read the Bible and we think we're on the side of the people that get it. I bet we would not. (laughs) I just bet we would not get it. And he is a person that uh, then was, you know, I mean, he was preaching of this one to come, but a, a gospel of repentance. Repent, turn from your sins and turn to God. Be baptized by me here in the Jordan, he says. And I think John the Baptist was likely expecting Jesus to be who he was in the sense of a liberator from sin, a liberator from our slavery to sin rather than just to our Roman occupiers. But I think that he might be thinking, Jesus is doing stuff a little differently than I thought he was going to be doing things. I kinda thought he'd be maybe a little more maybe he thinks like a little more wilderness, a little more fasting, a little less feasting, right? Jesus came feasting and celebrating, and John was out in the wilderness eating grasshoppers. Like, I don't know. He's probably what Jesus, like you're not you're not doing the stuff like I'm doing it. And in we see in Luke three, uh, fifteen to eighteen that he, he is saying how the Messiah is going to come and preach judgment and fire and this, bringing this judgment down upon the people of God. And so when Jesus comes offering blessings and healings and grace, maybe he's confused about, well, how is this all working? Like, I don't, I don't know. And remember, John's in jail, and he's just trying to figure out what's going on. But he is in this moment of needing some reassurance, some assurance, some confirmation. John the Baptist needed some reassurance. Think about how you might need some reassurance. And maybe just give yourself a little bit of grace. Give yourself a break, okay? If you have a struggle or a doubt about God, or you might not be sure about all this. Yeah, man. John the Baptist had these moments of not being sure. And what we see here as he sends these, these people, he's in jail, so he sends his disciples, and he says, ask, ask him if he's him. Ask, ask him if he's the coming one that we've been expecting and waiting for all this time. And what does Jesus say to him? Look at the things I've done. Look at my works. Look at all of the stuff I've done. Now, Remind yourself here, if you look, turn, turn to Luke 7, if you're not already open there. Luke 7, it says, 18, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. You see that? They told him everything Jesus was doing. And then he, he sends two guys to go talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, Tell him everything I'm doing. <laughs> he already just heard all that stuff, okay? So Jesus doesn't answer him with some new knowledge or some, you know, other way of understanding this. He's like, no, John, I get it. You need some assurance. I love that old hymn, Blessed Assurance. We need assurance of our faith. Maybe John the Baptist needed blessed reassurance, We need that in our lives. We need to be reassured. We need to be confirmed. We need that. And so what do we do? We look at the things that Jesus has done. Were you here last week? What did Jesus do in the story we talked about last week? He brought someone back to life. And he's telling John's disciples, go tell them. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. I'm preaching good news to the poor. Do you know what he's quoting there when he's saying all that? He's sort of quoting himself in Luke four when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and reads Isaiah 61 at the synagogue in Capernaum when he first starts to reveal who he is. And he reads this passage about the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the dead raised to life, people being liberated from their oppression. And he says, I have fulfilled this scripture today in me. I am the one who fulfills this. He's telling John those same words remember, remember who I am. I am him, he says. I am him. And so I want you to know today that Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. Jesus is the one. He is the one with the power to bring the dead to life. And he is the one then that can forgive your sin. The, thing that, the, the things that you have done, each and every one of you, that you have done to separate you from God. Never from God's love, but to separate you from his presence. Destined to an eternity in hell. And he now has come and shown that he is the one that you are waiting for. That when he offers forgiveness, grace, and salvation, it works, it's real, and it has power because of who he is. You might doubt that sometimes. You might doubt that a lot of the times. John the Baptist doubted that for a time. And Jesus reassures him. I pray that we'd be reassured and I pray that we'd give ourselves a little grace in the midst of our own struggle. And so this, this story, though, radical, awesome, that Jesus is, is showing all of this about himself. And really, like, when you look at it deeply, it sounds like he's not answering the question but when you really look at it, he's answering the question in, in a bold way. A bold proclamation of who he is, of all of these messianic Old Testament prophecies coming true with the things he's done. But he's like, so what about what I say? Look at what I've done. Look at my deeds. Look at the works I have done. And believe and be reassured. But we have in the midst of this time, you've got all these people rejecting Jesus. You've got people rejecting John. Even though they come in very different ways. One comes fasting and one comes feasting, right? They both, Jesus does a little fasting too, we know that. But like, it's like in that sense of this desert guy that's like kind of wild and then Jesus coming and being with the people and blessing and healing and they both come in these very different ways. But being rejected by different people all the same. Both John and Jesus rejected. Jesus says this thing in verse 23 when he's telling John's guys, uh, to go back and tell them what you've seen. And then he says at the end there, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. This fall away is, uh, this Greek is like to be, to be ensnared, to be tripped up, to be tripped up. Okay, so don't get tripped up because of me, he says, Jesus. The words I say, you've got all sorts of people getting like freaking out. You know, this stuff. Jesus is saying wild things about himself. He's saying things like "eat my body" and you know, "drink my blood" and stuff like that. And you're like, "Whoa, okay, that this is some crazy stuff that he's saying and that he's proclaiming to be." Don't get tripped up. Don't get ensnared and all that. Don't get ensnared that or tripped up, John, because I might come and I'll I'll eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners. Don't let that mess you up, okay? Don't let that mess you up. Pharisees are getting messed up by different parts. They're getting tripped up by different parts of Jesus' message. All sorts of people are. And I think part of that is through something I might even just call ideological entrenchment. Okay? Entrenchment that you are so focused on the things that you already think and believe that you're not willing to have your mind changed by anyone, even God. That you're so locked in that this is how God must be. And like the Pharisees, this is how the Messiah will be. And we've figured this out and I've got this nailed and he's going to come and agree with me. And if he doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. That means he's wrong. Right? That's that ideological entrenchment. Like, do you think about the way God works Maybe you've been wrapped up in, in like a, a works-based life or a, a prove yourself to God sort of life. Like God won't love me unless I do all of these things for him. And then he comes with offering grace and you think, nah, that can't be it. It's gotta be more to it. Now, interestingly, there is more to it. It's not just we're offered grace. It's, we are offered grace freely. And then out of that, we are saved But then after that, we're called to do all sorts of things for him. We're commanded to do all sorts of works. It doesn't save us, but that's a life lived in obedience to a God who loves us and saves us. So I just, what I want for you to recognize is, do I even hear things from the Bible? Like when Jesus says, love is the most important thing. Loving God and loving your neighbor is the most important commandment. That is the absolute most important thing. And then we'll read in more, like faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. Out of these already three most important things, love is the most important thing. You think, I don't know, man. Isn't it like obedience or something or holiness? I would say to you, love is how we live out obedience and holiness. That is how we do that. And so if, that's, if you kind of bump on that or think that sounds soft or something, like read your Bible. Read your Bible and don't reject it. Read your Bible and submit to it and say, I will live my life according to this word of God and I will, I'll do what you say, Lord. I'll do what you say. Don't reject it because it seems different than what you think it's supposed to say. And then this last part that we'll look at here it's like an interesting, unique little part. And I want to uh, say this point, and then we'll read it. That Jesus calls us to weep and to celebrate, to fast and to feast. Let's reread those last uh, few verses there, 31 to 35. It says, to what, this is Jesus speaking, okay? To what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? They're like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. Let me pause there for a second and talk about how kids were probably weird, I guess, back then. I don't know, that's like, (laughs) like, what kids would say this? Um, (laughs) But we've got here this thing like, hey, look, we're playing a celebration but you, you don't do anything, you just sit there. You didn't dance, so we played a funeral song, but you still just sat there, you didn't weep. You gotta respond. You have to respond to a holy God. You have to respond to a God that is calling you to follow him and to celebrate him, but also to weep at the appropriate times. To weep, let me continue. For John the Baptist, it's Jesus' words, for John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say he's possessed by a demon, right? He's a crazy person. The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. There's a lot going on here, a whole lot going on here. But I want you to see that John the Baptist is a good guy and Jesus is a good guy, okay? They're both good guys in the story. They're people worth following and emulating. And John the Baptist, he came fasting and he came weeping. And Jesus, it says, here, these are Jesus' words here, he came celebrating and feasting. And the answer is yes. We need to respond and react to Jesus with all of this. With all of this. He's like, you call John crazy? You call me a sinner, and a drunkard, and a glutton? He's like, I, we, re, we rejoice with those who rejoice, We weep with those who weep. We are struck with the awesomeness of God. We're struck with our sin. And we're struck with how incredible it is that the God of the universe would come and live a life as a person and sacrifice his very life for us, suffering, pain. And yeah, that causes us to be overwhelmed and to weep with that. We're moved by his power and his compassion like we were last week as we see him care for this widow's lost her only son. And we're moved. We weep with those people in that story. We weep with people in these stories today. We often weep. But we're also called to celebrate. I mean, I love this passage, man. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. Share with those who have nothing prepared. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10. Obviously one of my favorite verses in the Bible, there's a whole book about it by, by me. <laughs> but um, it's this, this celebration. We don't just sit in our, in our sorrow, we celebrate what he's done. And so we're gonna approach now the communion table. And I want us to think about the communion table with this in mind, okay? With this passage in mind. That the communion table here calls us both to weep and to rejoice, right? We weep because of what Jesus has done and what he went through. There's sacred. There's... There's like a a very purposeful and intentional sense of sorrow in that, that our God had to go through that for us. But we recognize this this is a banqueting table. This is a feast table that we come to, and we come to celebrate that we have victory because of what he has done. That we have a conquering hero who destroyed death on the cross. He, didn't, he wasn't beaten on the cross. He had a plan all along. He knew what he was doing. The cross isn't a moment of defeat. The cross is a moment of victory. And the resurrection is the culmination of that victory that we celebrate as we come to the communion table. We, we, it is a beautiful, beautiful moment. And we think of it as this, like, this feast table of, of our God, this banqueting table of the, of the eternal kingdom that we have forever. In Luke 14, there's a, Jesus tells this parable of this, of this banquet, inviting people to this banquet. And the thing that, that he stresses in this parable is that he calls everyone to this banqueting table. He calls the billionaires and the beggars. He calls the goody-good kids and the kids on the naughty list. He calls the well-dressed and the ragamuffins. He calls the strong and the sick. All are called to his table. And so what we do is we simply respond in faith to what he has done. And so we consider the communion table. The table that has the bread and the cup. The bread that represents the body of Christ given for you. This bread is what we feast upon. Bread, Psalm 104, I believe it is, it says, God has given wine to gladden the hearts of men and bread to make them strong. And I think I take that all the way then to this feast of the communion table, that we have the cup that is the wine And the wine should not just make us sad, it should make us celebrate. It gladdens the hearts of men. And we recognize, though, the sacrifice that was made. And so we remember, so we take that seriously, we remember, and the remembering is the sorrow, it is the the fasting, it is the weeping. But we also recognize with gratitude, just as Jesus, as he broke the bread, he passed it out, he gave thanks. And so we have gratitude and celebration for what he has done. And so today, as we respond by taking communion, I want you to remember, but I also want your hearts to be filled with gratitude and celebration, to rejoice in what he has done. And so as the worship team will Come and to lead us in song over the course of this next song. I'd love for you just to to reflect both in that sense of weeping but also rejoicing, celebrating what God has done for you. So in the course of this song, I encourage you to come up to the different tables and stations throughout the room and to take the elements and then just bring them back to your seat with you and then wait until this song's over and then I will lead us as we take together. Okay? Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would dance a wedding song and that we would sing a funeral song. May this moment be both. May this moment be weeping as well as rejoicing, Lord, as we feast together here at the table. Thank you for your body given for us, your blood shed for us, and thank you for the great victory you won as our conquering hero. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and grab the elements.